So God gave us a son, and, uh, you know, everything kind of just happened the way you, you might think it would happen. Didn't really think too much about it. We were kind of young and inexperienced and just sort of, okay, well, we're, we're pregnant now. And nine months later, we had a baby, healthy, no complications by God's kindness. A little while later, we found ourselves pregnant again. And um, about, I don't know, nine, ten weeks into the pregnancy, Aaliyah told me she started bleeding. And we ended up miscarrying that child. And then we got pregnant again, and we miscarried again. And that sort of rocked us um, at that time, not just because uh, we were experiencing a miscarriage, a a death of a, a child, but because really the first one had been so easy. It really made, at least me, stop and think, wow, I really took that first pregnancy for granted. I don't really recall praying for it very much at all throughout the time, you know, up to the birth. I, and I was, I was sort of taken back and shocked at my own uh, lack of concern or, or dependence on God retroactively for our first pregnancy. Now, God's been very kind to us uh, since that time in our lives, but coming off the heels of last week where we talked about God working to save those who grow up in the context of a church, a Christian family, a Christian home. I want to address this week the issue of young children that die in infancy or through miscarriage. What are we to believe about those children's eternal state? Perhaps you have experienced miscarriage yourself, or you've had a young infant die. Perhaps you have had a a brother or a sister announced to you and then later your parents have to come and tell you that that baby has, has died. What are we to believe about that? What does the Bible speak about this issue? What, do, do we have substantial cause for hope? Or are we to mourn? Or do we have to live in the nether regions of speculation? This is an important topic for us because God has been very kind and has blessed us with many children. And many have and will continue to have miscarriages along the way. Uh, Many of us, uh, some of us have, and and more will have children that die after birth. It's of great importance that we understand what the Bible says because what we believe shapes our lives. We've been saying that over the last month or so. What What we believe shapes our lives. It shapes how we act. What we believe about the eternal destiny of these children that die in infancy shapes the way that we will respond to their death, and it will shape the way that we respond to God. So this morning, I want to consider what the Bible says about the nature of saving faith with regard to those that die in the womb and those that die in infancy. And I want to start by saying that the Bible does not make any unilateral declarative statements that all babies go to heaven. There's no single verse that so quickly and succinctly can put all of our hearts and our minds to rest when thinking about the topic. But the Bible does say much about the nature of God and his love for our children. And there are some large narrative hooks that we can hang our hopes on as we view, approach a topic like this. So I want to start by reading one of those together. If you would stand with me, let's open our Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 12. A familiar passage to those of you that have been in the church for some time. 
2 Samuel chapter 12, if, as you're standing and, and grabbing your Bible and thumbing through it, the context is King David has committed adultery. And because of the pregnancy that was the result of that initial adultery, he had uh, the woman's fo- husband murdered. So there's been adultery committed, and after that, murder committed by David. And Nathan, the prophet of God, has come to confront David and to tell him what the result is going to be because of his sin. And what he says is, for the adultery, your own children will be with your wives, and it will be in front of the whole of the kingdom. And then he says, for the murder, the sword will never leave your house. And then he says, because you have despised my covenant and my law, and because you've allowed the heathens to reproach me and my righteousness through having this child out of wedlock, that child is going to die. And we pick up in, in, in 15b of chapter 12, the word of the Lord. Then the Lord struck the child that Uriah's widow bore to David so that he was very sick. David therefore inquired of God for the child, and David fasted and went all night and lay on the ground. The elders of his household stood beside him in order to raise him up from the ground, but he was unwilling and would not eat food with them. Then it happened on the seventh day that the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, Behold, while the child was still alive, we spoke to him, and he didn't listen to our voice. How then can we tell him that the child is dead, since he might do himself harm? But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David perceived that the child was dead. So David said to his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, He is dead. So David arose from the ground, washed, anointed himself, and changed his clothes. And he came into the house of the Lord, and he worshiped. Then he came to his own house, and when he requested, they set food before him, and he ate. Then his servant said to him, What is this thing you have done while the child was alive? You fasted and wept, but when the child died, you arose and ate food. And he said, While the child was alive, I fasted and I wept, for I said, Who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he has died. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. The word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Most tender and loving Lord, most holy and righteous judge, to whom we will all give an account, I pray that you would bless the preaching of your word and that you'd instruct us in what we are to believe and how we are to live, that you might receive glory and honor from our lives, love and adoration from our hearts. May each day of our lives burn as a candle that is a pleasing aroma, a sweet sacrifice of praise to you. This we pray in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, who gave his life for our ransom. Amen. Please be seated. Like I said, for many of us, a familiar passage. A monumental time in the life of David, in the life of the kingdom of Israel, God's chosen people in the Old Testament. At this time in David's life, he says these words, now my son has died, a a declaration 
And then a question, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? And then another statement, I will go to him, but he will not return to me. David not only believes, but David assumes that this unnamed son has passed from this life into glory to be with Jesus Christ, to be with God. That's a statement that I'm making. Some are hesitant to say that. Some say that David is not speaking about going to be with God in heaven, but he's speaking more generally about David going on into the afterlife, or David, or I mean, I'm sorry, David's son going on into the afterlife, or David's son descending to the grave. And so David says, he will not return to me, but I will go to him in, in the way that we all will one day go into the ground just like David's son presumably did. Now, I find this line of thinking, this line of reasoning preposterous for multiple reasons. I want to point out a couple of them to you as we approach this topic and start wrestling with what the scripture says. First, we should observe, we should pay attention that King David, the man after God's own heart, is completely laid out before God. He won't eat, he won't sleep, he won't rest. His sole focus is to plead for his infant son's life. David's wise men, we're told, seek to help him by lifting him up, by urging him to come and eat, and be with them at the table, but he won't have it. He's desperate while the child is sick in bed. And what we need to recognize as we read this passage is that the elders are not just caring for David here. They're also caring for the kingdom that David rules. They're caring for the kingdom that they, by association as his wise men, help lead, rule, and care for. They're clearly concerned for David's life. And as king, you recognize then the connotation of first the scandal of this sin coming out, but then imagine the king passing away and what happens then? I believe that David was lying, fasting, and petitioning God and I believe that he also probably wasn't drinking. It doesn't say whether he drank. It says he fasted and wouldn't eat. But I don't think he did. And the reason that I think that is that if you think back eh, six chapters or so, or maybe, I can't recall, when his men, when Saul was king and David was thirsty, and he sends his men to go get him a drink, and they sneak down and risk their lives and get that cup of water and bring it back to him. When they bring it back to him, what's David say to them? He says, I'm not going to drink it. He pours it out on the ground as an offering to God. He says, I'm not going to drink that cup of water to satisfy my thirst. You risked your lives for it. I cannot see how it's fathomable that David would not drink that water when those men risked their lives. But now that his son is in the peril of death himself because of his own sin, He's going to go to the cup and say, I'm going to relieve myself. I'm thirsty. I just don't, I can't see it. And so you can imagine King David laying on the ground in prayer, wrestling for God, with God, for, to have mercy on his son by giving him more life for seven days, and then the child dies. Seven days. You imagine seven days without sustenance. And you recognize the peril that David was likely in. You recognize the strain that the elders 
of Israel are feeling. You recognize perhaps how close David himself was to perishing. This is what's going on. But to their shock, when David perceives that his son is dead, we're told that he rose, that he washed himself, and he went to worship the Lord. And when he was done, he went home and he ate. If David had any thought, any thought at all, that that child had not gone to be with his Savior in the peaceful arms of heaven, can you imagine that sort of response? Can you imagine such a thing? A man laying out when a son is sick, but then once he learns the child's past into destruction, he gets up and eats? No. When David says, now he has died, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I'll go to him, but he will not return to me. He speaks of being uh, rejoined his, with his son in heaven with the Lord. That's the first reason I think that that line of reasoning that he's only speaking about going to the day, grave is, is, is faulty. The second reason is that it would be preposterous for David to think that God would send his infant son to hell, to be punished in hell, because when God had brought David to the throne, he spoke to him and he said this, when your days are complete and you lie down before your fathers, I will raise up your descendants after you. They'll come forth from you and I will establish your kingdom. Now, at this point in, our, in history, we can look back and say, oh yeah, that was Solomon. But guess what? He didn't know what child that promise was talking about. He just knew he was talking about his future son that would be king in his place. Are you with me? So God makes this promise to him. What does he know about God? God makes this promise to him. He recalls it. And he goes on in this promise. God goes on to say, I will be a father to him. And he will be a son to me. And when he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness will not depart from him. Now, if God will not forsake David's children on account of their own sins, how could God forsake David's infant son on account of the father's sins? Those who'd say that David was just speaking about being rejoined with his son in death are not being faithful to what the scripture says very clearly, not all in one little spot, but if you're a careful student and you do some thinking, they aren't being faithful to what, what God has said to David. David speaks of having an endowment in heaven, an endowment that many of us share in. I recall that, that term actually is, a, is one that God has um, used in my life to, to be a comfort. When we miscarried that child after Micaiah, I remember going out, you know, it's a, miscarriage is such a strange thing to deal with. Many people don't really know how exactly they should deal with it. Um, but I remember going out to the garage and calling my dad. I remember sitting on a pile of uh, Menard siding and telling him that we had miscarried the child. And that, I, I remember that that's what you said. Well, 
you have an endowment in heaven. And I'll, I'll never forget that. You may think that this arrangement with David was something unique, something special. Well, God had made him a specific promise that he wouldn't forsake his children. It's not true. There are other examples in the scripture, and I, I'm not going to spend much time going over them, but you read the Bible, and they'll stick out to you. I'll point out one other. You may recall the story of the Shunammite, the Shunammite woman. Elijah takes, uh, um, the Shunammite woman is a woman who shows special kindness to Elijah. She's a barren woman, and so Elijah shows kindness to her and prays on her behalf that she'll have a child. She has a child. And that child, shortly after birth, becomes sick. And then that child dies. And that Shunammite woman saddles up a donkey. She says, I'm going to go see the man of God. And she travels to the man of God at Mount Carmel. And the man of God, Elisha, looks out and sees the Shunammite and says to his servant Gehazi, hey, that's the Shunammite woman. Go, go see if she's okay. And so Gehazi, the servant of God's mouthpiece, goes to the Shunammite and says, is it okay with you? Is it okay with your husband? Is it okay with your, fa- with your son? And what's the Shunammite say? She says, it's okay with me. She says, it's okay with my husband. And then she says, it is well with my son. Her son was dead. This woman had had a son that died of a terrible sickness, and yet she says it is well with him. Again, I ask, what are we to deduce from this? What are we to learn? What is clear is that she was persuaded that whatever had become of his spirit, it was safe in the keeping of God, happy beneath the shadow of his wings. If you have had little ones that die, you should know that it is well with your child. You may not have heard them confess that Jesus is Lord. You may not have seen them baptized. You may not have brought them to church to hear their vows. They, may, they might not have been able to give a good answer of conscience toward God. Nevertheless, like this woman and like David, you should rest assured that it is well with your children. David's son never made a profession. David's son died significantly on the seventh day one day short of being circumcised, one day short of being formally brought into the covenant, one day short of being named. David's hope was rooted in none of those things, baptism, member of the church. That's not where his hope was. You share with King David every reason for assurance that you will be reunited with your child in the life to come. Now I want to turn and I want to seek to explain the way in which we believe infants are saved by Jesus And then I want to give some reasons that we believe this from the Bible. That's where we're going. Some might say that the reason that infants and the pre-born go to heaven is rooted in their innocence. If you've ever held your own child, you you know how precious and innocent they seem. It's It's a wonderful feeling. Them looking up at you, opening their eyes perhaps for the first time. It's a beautiful and wonderful feeling. But we believe no such thing. We don't believe that children who die go to heaven because they're innocent. We will not meddle with truths that the Bible speaks clearly. The Bible says in Adam all died. 
All infants, no matter how precious and cute, fell in the sin of our forefather, Adam. That is what the Bible clearly teaches. Nowhere in the Bible is there any exception made for infants or for the preborn. And so, though they may not sin personally, they might not never lie or curse or steal or lust, they share in original sin. And because of that, they share and bear the original guilt before God. That's what the Scripture teaches. In Psalm 51, which is coincidentally David's psalm of repentance for his sin of adultery and murder, he says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. Conceived me. The clear teaching of Scripture is that our forefather Adam sinned, And we share in that sin, and therefore in the guilt of that sin from conception. And if God allows us to live much past our birth, we're going to start adding to that sin in very specific, personal ways. We don't believe that those that are the preborn and that infants who die go to be with the Lord on the basis of their innocence. But if they aren't innocent, on what grounds do we believe that they're saved? Why can we say this? Why can we have this hope? Well, we believe that they are saved just the way we are saved. They are redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus shed his blood to purchase them just as he did their parents. And therefore, they are saved because Jesus was a sponsor for them and suffered in their place. That is why everyone goes to heaven. Jesus was a sponsor for them. Jesus teaches very clearly that we must be regenerated, born again. He says, unless a man be born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And when he says a man, he's not making a carve out for children. This applies to infants just as it applies to you and to me. We all must be born again if we are to enter heaven. And in some mysterious manner that none of us can fully understand or explain, the Spirit of God regenerates an infant's soul so that they can enter glory and be a partaker of the inheritance of the saints. Now, this might strike you as a strange thought. It it is a strange thought. But the idea of a regenerate infant is not just a suggestion in the Scripture. It's a fact. It clearly happens. It's a way in which God clearly works and has worked. He must, he, he is not bound to work in this way, but he may. Remember, John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Spirit when he was in the womb of his mother. My Uncle Tim preached on that passage earlier this year. If you'd like to consider that more, you can go back to the beginning. I think it's the beginning of this year and find that sermon. John the Baptist received the gift of the Holy Spirit before he was born. So even as God is forming a child together in the womb, before their mind can think in any sort of rational way or their voice can be heard by us, God, through the work of his Spirit, may, may make the child a new creature in Christ. This is illustrated in the Bible, that God may cause a child to be born again by his Holy Spirit before the child is born by the mother. When children are saved, 
by God in infancy, it is by no other means other than God's sovereign choice, his election of that child, his sovereign choosing of them, redemption, Jesus dying in their place, and regeneration, the Holy Spirit causing them to be born again. There is no other way that a man will be saved. If God were to make some sort of carve-out for children that die in infancy, then he would have had to set aside his justice. And he will not do that, and he cannot do that. As the perfect judge of all the earth, he will not set aside his justice. His perfect plan for salvation will not be altered, and it will not be set aside. I've illustrated that God can and has elected infants and those that die um, in the womb. Now I'd like to think about the topic in light of God's nature for a few moments. Why do I trust that I have an endowment in heaven? Why should you have peace and trust that you have an endowment in heaven waiting for you if you've lost a child? First, I'd simply say that we have the same assumption rooted in the same belief as King David did when he said, he's not going to return to me, but I will go to him. We share in that. If we love Lord Jesus Christ as David did, if we worship and repent of our sins as fathers and mothers in the way that David did, we have absolutely every right and should approach God as David did. Countless times throughout the Old and New Testaments, God's nature is declared. And I have to think that David was in those seven days and nights that he laid on the ground recounting, recounting what God had revealed about himself throughout the, the Pentateuch. The Lord your God is a compassionate God. He will not fail you. He will not destroy you, nor forget the covenant that he has with you or with your fathers, which he swore to them. The Lord, the Lord God, is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgressions, and sins. Even David will write later in the Psalms that the Lord is good to all and that his mercies are over all his works. That's inspired truth about God's nature. We read that God is so tender that he tells Israel that he would not have them muzzle the mouth of an ox when it's treading on the corn. He cares for the birds in the nest and will not have the mother be killed while she's sitting upon them. He made ordinances and commandments to his people to protect animals. And if he cares so much to protect these, how can you not also believe that he will care for the soul of your infant? This isn't to say that God overlooks the just penalty of sin. God is just. God's justice and mercy aren't opposed to each other, though. They underscore one another. God sent and subjected his own son, whom he loved, to pay the price for our sins, which was death. That was the debt that justice demanded. That is how just and how merciful God is toward you. Beyond this, there is 
a consistent theme that God is merciful and tender specifically with regard to children. You know, we talked about this last week. God's promises are, are covenantal. They're generational. They're given to Abraham, and, and they're to be passed down to his children, and it didn't end with him. The same truth uh, with, with David applies. We already read about God's promise to be faithful to David's children. The same is true with us. These are very real and specific promises. This is what we acknowledge when we bring children for baptism. We claim God's promises on their behalf as we do for our own. You think about the Old Testament and and what David would have known about God. This is why it was such an abomination against God when the Israelites would sacrifice their children to Molech. God, God commands us to protect our children and to love them and care for them. Actually, later on and after David's time, I think it's striking the, 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 under the reign of well, Manasseh, they, were, they sacrificed children to Molech. And when God confronts them, he says, what have you done with my children? You can look it up later. He calls them my children that you've sacrificed to a pagan god. It's a striking verse. There's other verses. Many, many, um, I have not thought about this before, but many pastors that I respect from history say that in the story of Jonah, when God at the end says that he is not going to destroy that city because there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right from their left, I hadn't thought about it like this, but again, many godly, faithful pastors, Calvin and Spurgeon and others, say that he's clearly referring to children. He says, I'm not going to destroy the animals, and I'm not going to destroy those who can't tell the difference between their right hand and left hand. And I'm not saying that is the perfect interpretation, but I think it's a striking one to, to note. It's not only with God. We Obviously, if we turn to the New Testament, we see Jesus' nature and his relationship with children Jesus makes special emphasis of affection toward them throughout his whole earthly ministry. When the disciples want to brush them aside, they're curious and want to come and sit with Jesus. Perhaps they have a question to ask him. He rebukes his disciples, and he says, don't you know that the kingdom belongs to such as these, these little children? Now, we'd be remiss if we didn't also recognize in much of Jesus' teaching, like, for instance, the Sermon on the Mount, where he starts with the Beatitudes, that many of the characteristics that he is preaching to us as adults are those characteristics that are so natural and normal to young children. Gentleness, peacefulness, pure, even mourning the, the cry of a little child for its mother. We need to take note of these things. When speaking with his disciples about their status and their rank in heaven, Jesus says to the disciples, truly I say to you, unless you're converted and become like a child, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself, even as this child, he's greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives such a child receives me. We could go on, but we won't. Earlier I said that our belief informs our actions. What we believe affects the way that we live, whether it's mourning 
or being comforted, finding comfort? Is it out there? Is it an option? It also affects the way we view God and respond to God. We see that in David's case. It's illustrated beautifully for us. So how are we to make use of this belief that God has elected and saved our little ones that depart from this life early? Well, there's a, there's a few things I'd like us to note, and then I'd like to give a warning. The first way right belief affects the way we live is that it allows us to mourn rightly. It allows us to mourn rightly. This is especially the case I feel mourning comes so naturally in death. But I said earlier that miscarriages often can seem strange. The fact that God saves um, those that are preborn underscores the reality that those are young men and women, doesn't it? And therefore, it makes it very obvious and clear that there's no problem in mourning it as a true loss. So mourn for it. Do not buy the lie that is always being evangelized by the abortion industry that anything that is not entered the mother is just tissue. That is not biblical. It's a lie from Satan. When you incur death, it is right and proper to mourn. So you can mourn. I'd say that also... um, On this note, I think it's common that many men feel like they don't totally understand a miscarriage quite in in the same way that wives do, Um, or at least their emotional response doesn't match the wives, and it, it doesn't necessarily need to match the wives, but what I'd say is when this happens in your life, or if it does, be gracious with each other, be loving, be tender. We also need to have uh, the freedom to mourn, okay. If God has elected and saved them, then they have an eternal identity, they have a name and characteristics. Mourn that, but then, second, we don't mourn as those that have no hope. We mourn, but then, like David, we get up and we worship the Lord. We rejoice in his goodness. And this is true whether it's miscarriage or whether it's an infant. We we get up and we, we worship the Lord for his mercy and grace and goodness. We don't live mourning a child that is taken from our bosom and been placed in the bosom of our Heavenly Father where it is only glory, only perfection, only joy, only gladness forevermore and evermore. David had hope and so should you. And David, I'm sure, had many days where that child came to mind in his future. But David lived in his hope, and so should you. We must live lives of worship and repentance as David did. His response is the one that we are to copy. To those of you with endowments in heaven, if you could see your little children now, you would likely not mourn. You know, when your children go off to college and have achievements, you don't mourn them. Even though they're not with you, you don't mourn them. The, 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 the realities of heaven go so far beyond any achievement that could be attained on earth. If you were to see them, you would not mourn. 
They are robed in royal garments. They are more richly blessed than any earthly crown that could ever be placed upon their head. I read a little poem that was once written as an epitaph, epitaph, and I thought it was helpful. It says, short was my life, the longer is my rest. God takes those soonest whom he loveth best, who's born today and dies tomorrow, loses some hours of joy but months of sorrow. Other diseases often come to grieve us. Death strikes but once, and that stroke doth relieve us. And that's true. That is biblically true. I firmly believe that the Bible teaches that. So first, we, we mourn. Second, we don't mourn as those who have no hope. We Im- emulate, imitate David. Third, I would urge us to spend our attention and our energies mourning the right things. Jesus said, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. You're going to be with the Lord, although I, I do not deny the sorrow of any death, but going to be with the Lord is nothing to mourn over in and of itself. Much better to spend our tears wrestling with God for the salvation of those that live. Never cease carrying them, carrying them before the throne of God. Just as we spoke last week, I, I mentioned Job, that great father in the Old Testament who, whenever his children would have a feast, would make an offering, a prayer to God, petition God's grace and kindness for his children in case they might have sinned at that feast in some way that was unknown to him. He was constantly petitioning and wrestling with God. His energy was wrestling with God for the souls of the children that lived because he wanted to see them saved. Wrestle with God until he blesses you with the blessing of seeing all of your children know the salvation that comes by faith through his spirit. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ that you will be saved, you and your household. Finally, I'd say Romans 1 is another passage that speaks to the reason why I believe that God has chosen to cover the sins of our children that die in infancy and to grant them salvation. In Romans 1, Paul is making an argument, well, he's, he's, he's declaring why all those that live are condemned by God under sin. And he says, because that which is known about God is evident to them, to all man, For God made it evident to them. He says, For since the creation of this world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been so clearly seen, being understood through that which he has made, so that they are without an excuse. At the end of that, he says, So that they are without an excuse. So that, or the therefore, depending on translation, at the end of that phrase, says that mankind would seem to have an excuse if... They had not clearly seen what God's nature was. Now, the preborn and young infants obviously cannot process nature and make conclusions about God based off of it. So I believe they would fall into this category that I think Paul is alluding to of having an excuse. But here's what I want to say. I'm not still arguing for why you should believe your children in heaven. What I want to say is that every one of you do not. None of you have an excuse. If you do not know what it means to be born again, if you do not have a love for Jesus Christ, then I warn you not to presume on the riches of God's kindness, his forbearance, or his patience with you. Do not presume just because you have not been dealt with 
that you will get away from him. The Bible says, do you not know that God's kindness to you in not dealing with you right now is so that you might be led to repentance and through repentance, salvation in Jesus Christ. So I call on you to repent of your sins and to look to Jesus for your eternal sponsorship. You can't do it on your own just as none of our little infant children could have done it on their own. Jesus can and is very willing to sponsor you. You must look to him for your good and ask him to provide for you that which you are unable to procure for yourself. And when you do that, you will find the same tender, loving kindness and mercy and steadfast love and faithfulness of God that we've spoken of already this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are just and that you are merciful, that you are wrathful and that you are loving, that you love and that you hate. These are all clearly established and laid out in Scripture. We can't deny them, and so we thank you that we see all these things are bound together and underscored centrally on Jesus Christ and the, the debt of love we owe to him for taking on our sins, our future sins, and dying for them and giving to us his perfect righteousness. Thank you for the hope that we have in him, and thank you that your scripture teaches that this isn't just our hope, but it's, it's the hope that we can have for our children, and especially those that you bring to yourself early. Thank you for loving our children. In Jesus' name, amen.